Well, my wife does not like scary movies. And I don't even mean horror movies, because I don't like those much either. I mean suspenseful, stressful thrillers. Uh, my dad actually can't handle them either. He's sitting right there in the blue. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not sure which category monster movies fit into, but recently I got Hannah Faye to watch the movie Cloverfield. And it's one of those movies that looks like it's shot on a camcorder. And I probably just lost everybody under the age of 24. Probably don't even know what that is. But anyway, for most of the movie, it's supposed to be filmed by this guy named Hudson. They call him Hud. And he films all night as he and his friends are trying to escape Manhattan as the city is just laid waste by this massive alien. And it's not the typical thing that I like to watch. I'm not really a fan of Godzilla or anything like that. But toward the end of the movie, Hud and his friends have found um, evacuation. Uh, A helicopter is leaving the island. So they're flying away, and he's still filming, and they watch as the military drops this huge explosive payload on this alien, and it falls, and it's enveloped in smoke, and Hud Hud is like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about right there. He's really excited that they've gotten this monster. And then the monster lunges right at the camera. It hits the helicopter, and it sends the helicopter just spinning. Um, And so you as the audience are watching helplessly inside this helicopter as it spins and spins and spins, and it's out of control about to crash in Central Park. But what has stuck out to me about that scene is that you hear Hud yelling, and the words he says are pretty revealing. He's, He's certain he's about to die, and all of a sudden he goes, Oh God, oh God, please, Jesus Christ, please. And I don't think he's taking the Lord's name in vain. I think that was actually um, astute on the part of either the actor or the writers of that movie. Because if you've ever been on the verge of a car accident, your car is skidding out of control, or you're in some other kind of mortal danger, you've probably said similar words. I would guess that you've called out to God as well. When our lives are stripped down to nothing, and maybe they're about to be taken from us as well, we cry out for God. And why is that? It's because... As beings made by God and for God, our deepest need is for his presence in our lives. We're going to see this morning that since that's our deepest need, we should seek him. We're going to focus on three things. The request for God's presence, the revealing of God's perfections, and the requirement of God's pardon. So let's look at Moses' request for God's presence. First, he wants God to be with the people of Israel. He is interceding for them because God has said he's not going to go with the people to the promised land anymore because of what they've done. They had proven themselves to be stiff-necked, to be stubborn and disobedient. So they're in a perilous place. They're about to lose the thing that made them distinct in the first place. This God had made them a great nation. He had rescued them from captivity. and He demonstrated that they were his favored people. My many signs and wonders. There were the plagues in Egypt that showed the uselessness of the Egyptian gods and the power of their god. There was the parting of the Red Sea. There was food from heaven. There was water provided from a rock. And there was God's personally leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Can you imagine the awe and the comfort of the physical presence of God in your camp as he's leading you to the land he's promised you. They're about to lose that after the golden calf worship. They're going to lose his presence. 
Earlier in chapter 33, verse 4, uh, Moses describes the reaction of the people when he relays the message that God is not going to go with them. He writes, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. So Moses is pleading on behalf of the people. He is their chosen mediator to go between God and them. He has found favor in God's sight. Look at verse 12. In the second half of the verse, he says, Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now Moses wants the favor that he's found to pass on to the people. Verses 15 and 16. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. So he identifies as one of the people. He doesn't distinguish. He ties their destiny to his. He insists that me and us mean the same thing. Twice he says, I and your people. He wants God to favor the people of Israel, and the proof of that favor will be in God's going with them once again. And Moses is not going to be satisfied with anything else. And God grants his request. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So because it's Moses who's asking, God is going to go with the people. Because of the mediator's favor that he has, God will be with the people. Did you ever get into some kind of exclusive event or maybe backstage at a concert because you knew somebody? Their favor passed to you and you were treated as they were treated. Now this apparent change on God's part, it might bother some people more than others. I just want to touch on it briefly. What's going on here? Is God fickle? Does he need Moses to show him a better alternative? Well, no. We have stories in the Bible like this one, and we have other portions of the Bible that are written to teach us clearly about God's character. So when we come to stories like this, we interpret them in light of those other passages. For instance, we know from the Bible that God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. Yet this passage describes God with human features, like a face and a hand, and it describes him as standing with Moses. These physical descriptions are written for us to understand. So how do we view this passage? We know from parts of scripture, like the Roman series we've been going through, that God is sovereign. He's in control and he has plans that he brings to pass in history. So how do we view stories like this where God seems to change his mind? I want to read something written by R.C. Sproul. The biblical narratives in which God appears to repent or change his mind are almost always narratives that deal with his threats of judgment and punishment. These threats are then followed by the repentance of the people or by the intercessory petitions of their leaders. God is not talked into changing his mind. Out of his gracious heart, he only does what he has promised to do all along, not punish sinners who repent and turn from their evil ways. He chooses not to do what he has every right to do. End quote. 
So passages like this that describe God with features of human beings, like a physical body or a change of heart, they're written for our understanding. God is not being fickle and he's not being disingenuous. He reveals more of his character in these scriptures. And we see that it's the people he's dealing with that are usually changed. And in seeing that, we're changed as well into people that repent, into people that plead with God in prayer like Moses. Now that God has granted Moses' request, Moses asked for something else. Look at verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. He wants some kind of proof of God's good intentions. He wants security for this agreement. But also, personally, I believe for himself, he's a man who has seen the glory of God. From his first encounter with God in the burning bush to God's deliverance in Egypt and his provision in the desert, God has shown himself to Moses. Moses has a taste of his glory and now he wants more. So let's see how God responds to this request with the revelation of his perfections, his glory. You know, anything that we know about God is because he's shown himself to us, either through creation or because he's told us about himself in his word. And here in this story, we have some of the most amazing, important things God has ever revealed about himself. So much so that Paul quotes this passage in the book of Romans when he's explaining the mysterious way God works as he bestows his grace to undeserving people. God tells Moses what he's going to do. Look with me in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So even as God tells Moses how he's going to proclaim his name, he tells him a little bit about who he is. Because God's name and his character are tied together. His name reveals what he's like. When our English Bible translates that word, the Lord, where all four letters are capitals, that is the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's one of God's names in the Bible, but he's called many things. This one, though, is the name God gives himself. It's his covenant name. Uh, John Piper has written something really helpful about this. He says the Hebrew name Yahweh is connected to the Hebrew verb, I am. So Yahweh is most fundamentally the one who is. I am who I am is the most foundational meaning of Yahweh. It means my amness comes from my amness. My being from my being. My existence from my existence. God's saying that his existence is independent of anything or anyone else. He's self-sufficient. He's free. I am who I am. It's not like some excuse, it is what it is, or Popeye with I am what I am, something like that. For God to call himself Yahweh is a monumental and exclusive claim to be the highest reality that there is. The one from whom all other things are birthed, the source of all other, th- all other things. There is a song by Gloria Gaynor that charted in the 80s, and it was a cover of a Broadway tune called I Am What I Am. But listen to these lyrics. I am what I am. I am my own special creation. So come take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. I am my own special creation. Think about that. She's claiming... 
oddly, to be the source of herself. She says she's self-sufficient. They're actually arrogant lyrics. The Bible calls that the pride of life. It's, it's one thing to not care what other people think of you because you're prideful. It's another thing to not care what other people think of you because you've found favor and security in Almighty God. Those are two way different things. God's presence is our deepest need because we were made by Him and for Him. So any attempt to find your fulfillment by just looking inside yourself, it's going to fall flat. It will let you down. God's name, Yahweh, I am who I am, it helps us understand the next part of the verse. I want to read verse 19 like this. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, I am who I am. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He's not just repeating himself. He's showing and telling us that just as his existence is independent, his choices to bestow grace and mercy are totally free. God, his choices depend on him alone. There's nothing that forces his hand. He doesn't need approval and he doesn't need to explain himself. One of my most favorite movies is The Matrix. Uh, It got really good reviews and some sequels were released later and a lot of people did not like those, but I I did. Um, Parts of the dialogue, I think, actually helped me understand parts of the Bible like this a little better. And let me tell you what I mean. There's this scene right near the end of the whole trilogy where the hero, Neo, is fighting his nemesis, Agent Smith. And he just will not give up. So Smith starts taunting him. He's like, why do you do it? Why get up? Why keep fighting? Do you think you're fighting for something? Is it freedom, truth, peace? Maybe it's love. If you can't tell, it's Hugo Weaving played Smith. (laughs) On and on he goes and, and finally ends with, why do you persist? And Neo struggles to his feet and he pauses and he looks at him. And he says, because I choose to. You might not think anything of that, but he's actually making a godlike claim. He's saying there's nothing that constrains him except his own choice. Not freedom or truth or peace or love, just his own independent, unstoppable will. Now, he's a fictional guy. But if a real person made that claim, it would be blasphemous. Because if you can truthfully say, I choose to because I choose to, you're God. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is the basis of the security of this promise. This is the hope that Israel can bank on. The promises God makes rest on him alone. He's firm. He's not flighty or ever-changing like a human being is. God has singled Israel out and he'll continue to be with them according to his independent will. We, like Israel, need the comfort of God's presence because he is the most solid foundation we can have, the most sure reality. He's self-sufficient and his choices stand because of him. Next, we see that God's response to Moses' request to see his glory is a yes but a no. There's a caveat. You can see some of me, but you can't see me in all my fullness. You can't see my face. Look at verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God's going to shield Moses, because if Moses were to see God in all his glory, his perfection, all his holiness, he would die. God says Moses will see his back. Again, God has no body. This is a way of talking so we can understand. Someone's face is what distinguishes their appearance the most in our minds. So God uses face to describe the full display of his glory. Moses would not be able to see God's face and continue living. So God will cover him with his hand. It's been said that God protected Moses from God. Now let's look at the actual encounter. Moses has come back up the mountain and God shows up. Look at verse 5 in chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Look at what God chooses to tell him about himself. He passes before Moses and now he defines himself. Merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving, but also just. You know, some people think that the God of the Old Testament is just this angry jerk of a deity and then Jesus comes in the New Testament and he's very mild-mannered and he doesn't really care what we do. But that's not true. Every time God judged in the Old Testament, it was well-deserved. Every time he pardoned with grace and mercy, it was not deserved at all. And the same goes for today. But here's just one example of God's mercy in the Old Testament that has struck me. Uh, Last week we had a guest who preached about Aaron's sons. Aaron is the brother of Moses. And he's also the one that made the golden calf for the Israelites to worship. Now not only does he not die, but God is so gracious to him that even after helping the people into that false worship, Aaron is made the high priest to lead the people in the true worship of God. God abounds in steadfast love. And that's what Israel needed. He hasn't changed and neither have people. We're still in need of a God who's slow to anger, who's faithful despite our being faithless. We're in need of a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. God's presence and favor is our deepest need because it's him that we've sinned against. Anything we've done against other people, anytime we've slighted others, it's really been an affront to God himself. So, The forgiveness we need is his. But he's also just. He says that he will by no means clear the guilty. And there could be a whole sermon on this idea of visiting the iniquity of the fathers down to the third and fourth generation. But if we were to look at this phrase in light of the rest of scripture, we would find that in the end, the guilty are those who continue in sin, who never repent, who never seek God's forgiveness. They don't care. Everyone who truly repents and seeks God's forgiveness will find it. But how is that possible? 
iniquity and transgression and sin, they have to be dealt with. How can God be forgiving and just at the same time? And how can we find his forgiveness when we really have disobeyed his will? You know, before when I was talking about Hud and the helicopter spinning to his doom, I didn't tell you everything. Amidst all his calling for God and Jesus, he begs, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, God, please. And again, I'm not sure if that came from the script itself or the actor was just ad-libbing, but it's very insightful. The recognition that not only when we're about to lose our lives, the question of God remains, but that there will be dread of facing him when we know we aren't worthy. I'm sorry are the words out of his mouth. His presence is our deepest need, but without his favor, it would be our deepest fear. We know there's something keeping God from being with us and for us. How can God pardon and show favor to unworthy people? We've seen Moses' request for his presence and God's revelation of his perfections. Now let's look at the requirement of God's pardon. Notice that God doesn't merely promise to go back to accompanying Israel like nothing had ever happened. They had worshipped the golden calf. They had broken God's covenant. To restore his presence, he intends to reinstitute that covenant. Look at the beginning of chapter 34, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now Moses, upon seeing the people worshiping that calf, had thrown those tablets that God wrote his law on, and he broke them. So God's going to make a new copy. If you're a good parent, and you have a child who's disobeyed you and broken your trust, they don't get their privileges back until there's been some kind of restoration. They commit once again to obeying you. At least that's the way it ought to be. God's companionship is grounded in his loving character, but it isn't possible without a covenant. And that covenant involves our obedience. But here we run into a problem because we can't keep God's law. The law of God can only show us our unworthiness. In the passage that Sharon read earlier, the writer referred to the law as the ministry of death and condemnation. It only showed Israel their need of God's grace and mercy. And so God's requirement for righteousness shows us our need as well. And the solution to this problem is Jesus. Can you see him all over this passage? Can you see Jesus who comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and obey it in our place? Jesus, God's Son, in whom he is well pleased. Jesus, our perfect mediator, who lives and pleads and makes his good standing into our good standing with God, just like Moses did for the Israelites. Like Moses, he identifies with us. He made our plight his own by becoming one of us. So look at him. He not only obeys in our place, but Jesus dies in our place to absorb all the holy wrath that we deserve from his Father. God protects us from God. 
those of us who have put our trust in Jesus. We sang about this last Sunday, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Elsewhere in the Bible, usually around Christmas, we read that Jesus is called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. He is our deepest need. When we're in Christ, that is when we're loved by God for Jesus' sake, makes it possible for us to have God's favor and his presence. So what difference does this make in our lives this morning? Well, if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to know that as followers of Christ, we are different from this first generation of Israelites. Eventually, this generation would remain stubborn and disobedient, and they would be condemned to wander the wilderness until all of them had died off. It was their children who would get into the promised land. And that's not us. If you're a Christian, you've been given a new heart, not a hard heart of stone that's dead to God. To contrast it with these people, whom God and Moses call stiff-necked, Christians have necks that turn to follow their creator and their savior. Again, in the earlier passage we read in the service, we've had a taste of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and we want more. But if you've grown up in the church or you've been Christian for a long time, maybe you've been accustomed to the things of God. Maybe you have let yourself become bored. The promise of his presence is not really that amazing to you. Well, you need to wake up fresh. You've got to get back into your Old Testament. Look at God, who may as well have been an alien to these people. He interrupts the lives of the people he has chosen, from Abraham to Moses and beyond, and he shows them what he's like. He shows them the wonder of who he is, and he is the same God we can know today. Even Jesus' own people weren't expecting to come the way he did. He came as a baby and as a servant, and it was startling. Ponder Jesus' humility and ponder the grace that you have in him. Rejoice that God can be with us and we can be with him because of Jesus, our perfect mediator. This should cause us to walk humbly with God, constantly repenting and communing with him in prayer. And I'm not good at this. I don't know about you. But we're to cultivate that thirst for more knowledge of him and more experience of his grace. Not only that, but we ought to do what Israel was supposed to do. Show God to the nations so they might see his glory and turn to him. What if you're here and you're not a Christian? God's presence in our lives is our deepest need, even if we've never acknowledged it before. Every desire you have in your heart for notoriety, for fame, for pleasure, for power, for truth to prevail, for hypocrisy to be exposed, or for justice to win out in the end. All those things in you testify to your thirst for the perfections and the presence of God. Don't look at his followers. We will be human and let you down to the day we die. Only God has the glory to satisfy your soul. But you too are unworthy. Are you willing to see yourself as unworthy? Are you willing to trust Jesus as the only way you can stand before God? Eventually, you will see him. Don't be caught dreading him, but desiring him. Look one more time at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 34. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses responds to all he's seen, besides once again repeating his intercession, is to worship. And may we do the same until we're at last with him, able to see his face and not die because of the favor we have through Jesus, our perfect mediator, God with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for revealing yourself in this passage. I ask that we would thirst for you, that we would seek after you, that we would be people of prayer and intercession, and that we would share you with those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.